Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report magazine. I'm Bianca Taylor, in for Sasha Coca. I love to swim in the San Francisco Bay. But to be honest, it's not really something that any of my friends want to do with me. They think I'm pretty nuts for wanting to get up at 6.30 in the morning and swim in the freezing cold water without a wetsuit, with the currents and the seals. So I could go by myself, but I've been really lucky to find this clubhouse, this group of people who will go out at any hour of the day, no matter what the conditions are. And it's so comforting to have that support system. You know, there's always someone to go with you to keep an eye out for seals or to help warm you up when you get hypothermic, which has happened to me before. When I think of community, that's what I think of. And all the stories in our show today are about people building this kind of community, whether it's a concert venue run by teenagers, a food pop-up, or a cafe in Yerevan, Armenia. That's where we're starting today. First, some history. A century ago, Armenians fled their homeland during the Armenian Genocide. And a lot of them came to California, specifically L.A. County, which now has the largest population of Armenians outside of Armenia. Now, though, some of them are moving in the opposite direction, back to Armenia, seeking a different kind of community. Reporter Levi Bridges traveled there to meet some of the Angelinos who've made the move. There are these tall beige hills around Yerevan, covered with scrubby little plants that actually kind of look a little like Southern California. Below them, the city unfurls into a jumble of stone buildings and tall, boxy apartments built back when Armenia was part of the Soviet Union. Outside one of those old Soviet apartments, I meet 33-year-old Nanor Balabanyan and her little dog, Coco. Coco, come here. No bad boy, Coco. Around the corner from her apartment, there are fruit shops stacked with brightly colored pomegranates, pears, and oranges. Here's where I get my vegetables. And if I'm tired, his friend delivers it to my house. Balabanyan moved here almost three years ago. Californians come to Armenia for very different personal reasons, but everyone talks about the sense of community here. Like, I know my neighbors. We knock their door right now. We can sit and have coffee with them. I love that on a weeknight, I can be out till 11, 12 at people's homes without having to constantly be nervous about tomorrow's 8 a.m. There's the social element that just makes Yerevan such a fun place to be. I can really feel that, just wandering around the neighborhood here. Here's the Lebanese coffee shop owned by my friend. Inside, the shop is about as big as a broom closet. My coffee shop very small, but my heart is very big. We will have two sahlabs. Once the frothy drinks come out, friendly arguments begin. You always do this, and then I don't pay. I don't know how you make business. You won't pay. Figure out, I will hide the money. I'm going to hide the money. Balabanyan grew up in Lebanon and went to high school in Palo Alto. 
In California, she didn't really connect with other Armenians like herself until she moved south and started college in Santa Barbara. When I went to Santa Barbara, like for the first time in America, I felt that I fit in because I found other Armenian community members. 95% were from Glendale, or it's many Armenians. In Glendale, even Mexicans speak Armenian. <laughs> like, I swear. During college at UCSB, Balabanyan and some other Armenian students spent a summer working on a volunteer project in a small Armenian village, setting up a computer lab. We were only 19, 20, 21 years old. And yet we had a common purpose and passion for our people. And I think I realized the power of our unity. That sense of unity is a powerful part of Armenian identity, especially for Californians like Balabanyan, whose ancestors survived the genocide. Balabanyan now runs a nonprofit here that helps expand access to education and leadership opportunities in rural Armenian villages. Californians like her are having a big impact on Armenia. A lot more of them started moving here to help this country after fall 2020. That's when Armenia and neighboring Azerbaijan fought a 44-day war. Entire towns fell to Azerbaijan and thousands of Armenians were displaced. The tragedy inspired 28-year-old Mikhail Matosian from the San Fernando Valley to make the move last year. We met up in a cafe. I just felt like I wasn't doing enough by just being in L.A. and working there, knowing that people my age or younger were being displaced or killed or hurt by the war here. Matosian worked in renewable energy back in L.A. Now he's helping Armenia make their energy system less dependent on Russian gas. Up on a hill in the center of town, Matosian shows me the apartment building he moved into when he got here. The unit that I live in is owned by a man that used to live here, and he moved to L.A. So I'd like to think that like we traded places. But Matosian says he sticks out here a little. His family, like a lot of Californian Armenians, uses a different dialect of Armenian than what's spoken in Yerevan. They fled a part of Western Armenia during the genocide that's now part of Turkey. And I used to be kind of self-conscious about that because I wanted to fit in here and I wanted to just like be in the system. But I've since kind of abandoned that idea. I'm comfortable with my dialect that I speak. Some older Californians are moving here with their children, so they grow up with a closer connection to Armenian language and culture. Hovek Manacharyan, an Armenian who moved to Glendale when he was a teenager, relocated here a couple of years ago with his wife and three kids. We always wanted to move back, but the 2020 war was a critical point for us. Um, it just sort of feels less stressful being here than far away and hearing about your homeland and not being able to contribute. This was all a huge change for his kids. They'd already changed schools a couple times before, but for Manocharyan's 17-year-old daughter, Vashkiner, everything felt different in Armenia. In America, if you move schools, they don't care. They're gonna be like, oh, is that girl new? Okay, whatever. But here, like, I remember the first day, the whole entire class cried me. They're like, hi, what's your name? Hi, let's show you around the school. Schools are more like family. Their mom, Susanna, was born in Armenia and later immigrated to Glendale. Raising kids here, in a country where there's a strong sense of community, gives her peace of mind. Here, I, I feel very safe when they take taxi from one place to another place. We know that, hey, this is Armenia. Everyone is Armenian. Everyone cares about each other. <laughs> we don't think of, like, hey, what's going to happen? But based on my conversations with Californians here, lots of their parents do worry when their kids move here. My parents were concerned, like, 
Are you sure that you don't have a clear job? You know, they didn't physically stop me from going, but they were not very happy. Every LA Armenian I've met so far has said their family wasn't psyched about them moving back no, here. No, 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 no. I don't think anybody's is. That last voice is from Kyle Kandikin. There's this idea that there's a lack of opportunity in Armenia, and I think families who are immigrants, it feels like a step back for their children rather than a step forward. Growing up, Kandikin's social life was really limited to the Armenian community. He went to a small private school in LA that focused on Armenian language and culture. When we were in high school, like we didn't give a crap about Armenian literature. Like now looking back, I'm like, oh, I wish I took that seriously. Like I wish I really read those books. I get the impression that maybe at times growing up in this community in LA felt maybe a little suffocating to you. Oh, for sure. Oh my gosh. I wanted to get out. Like I wanted out because I really needed space to breathe and space to be myself. As a student at UCLA, Kandikin really stepped away from the community just to see what else was out there. I'm also gay and being queer, it was just very much like a closed taboo subject that nobody talked about. As a kid, I didn't feel like I could be out, and I wasn't out. But after college, once he got some distance and became more comfortable with his sexuality, he felt like his different identities could all coexist. And that made him want to wholeheartedly embrace Armenian culture in a way he felt like he couldn't do before. And I think maybe one of the reasons why I wanted to come here is to let go of some of the baggage that I was given just by way of being born into uh, this place and this people. Kandikin has been here for seven years now. He loves it, but he misses the diversity of a place like L.A. The genocide tried to extinguish Armenian culture, but the survivors carried it with them, as if their traditions were burning embers that they later rekindled in places like Glendale into these big, roaring bonfires. Before I came here, I really had no connection to this country. Now, I don't often have these existential thoughts about what it means to be Armenian so much anymore because now I'm here. Now I'm like fully immersed in Armenia and in my heritage. Coming here makes Armenia palpable, something you can touch without getting burnt and carry with you when you go. For The California Report, I'm Levi Bridges in Yerevan, Armenia. There's something about food that instantly creates community, whether you're cooking it or eating it or sharing it. And during the pandemic, food became a source of comfort in a really big way. Our new series, Flavor Profile, is all about the folks who use that challenging time to open up successful food businesses, many of them with little or no experience. To kick our series off, KQED Sasha Koka sent us this story from LA about a couple bringing flavors from their childhoods to rotisserie chicken dishes. She caught up with the founders of Saucy Chick at a Sunday food market called Smorgasburg in downtown LA. Those are the best tacos I've ever had in my whole life. This is a great mixture between two cultures. Beautiful, vibrant mix of spices. You can't get this type of taste anywhere else. I'm watching this long line of people make their way up to the bright pink Saucy Chick Tent. It's a mom and pop food business that's built on organic rotisserie chicken and two of my favorite kinds of cuisines. 
So our menu draws from both Mexican and Indian cultures. Even though their line of customers is growing by the minute, co-owner Ria Patel takes the time to greet each one by name. You got it. What's your name? Ina. Ina? I-N-A? Y-N-A. Very nice to meet you. My name is Ria. Ria is the daughter of Indian refugees from Uganda. Her husband, Marcel Michel, is the son of immigrants from Mexico. I don't think anyone walks away from an Indian or Mexican household or party underwhelmed. We are generous with our food. Food is central to any gathering, whether it's joyous or um, solemn. Before the pandemic, Ria and Marcel both worked corporate jobs at Disney. Marcel in recruiting, Ria in marketing. They had no background in food. Zero restauranting, cooking, chefing experience at all. But they knew what it was like to be busy with the commute and parenting while trying to figure out quick meals that are also healthy. They both love rotisserie chicken, and they wanted to learn to cook it for their family by developing recipes reflecting both their cultures. For Marcel, that meant a marinade based on cochinita pibil, a dish from the Yucatan that's usually made with pork. It's something he grew up eating as a kid. Marinated achiote, citrus, and garlic. For Ria, it was a jita chicken based on her dad's cumin chicken curry. Got caramelized onions, garlic, ginger, cumin. But then the pandemic hit and they found themselves without an income and with a lot of time on their hands. In the middle of the pandemic and sometimes 110 degree uh, weather, he was sitting in our garage working through how to do rotisserie chicken. And we'd be on YouTube trying to figure out how to truss it. And we started asking friends and family if we could feed them for donations. And soon we found ourselves driving all over LA and Orange County. Family would tell friends, their friends would tell other friends, and we started kind of growing from there. So their home cooking wasn't exactly covering all their bills, but they were on to something. People love their tender rotisserie chicken, injected with salt brine and marinated for 24 hours in either the Mexican pibil or the Indian jita sauce. They weren't doing fusion. They were layering the menu with dishes rooted in each of their cultures. Indian-inspired charred haldi cauliflower and cucumber salad with coconut, mint, lime, and peanuts. Mexican-inspired beans, handcrafted tortillas, esquites with fenugreek. But as they got deeper into it, they started to realize restaurant work is hard. When we were working out of our house, I was hand-rolling East African chapatis, over 1,200 of them. And so my wrists were going out. It's a lot. (laughs) But they also found it can be really rewarding. We were at a time where we were all being asked to be distant and to have separation. But moving into the food industry, we found actually the exact opposite of in spirit. We would not be where we are today if it weren't for very, very generous folks. But just when they rented a commercial kitchen and decided to put everything into the chicken business, they got called back to work at Disney. Working for Disney was such a pinnacle in my career of recruiting. I was working at the studios working with Marvel and Lucasfilm, and so it was kind of like my dream job. And I'm gonna risk it, losing it, and start something new in a space that I have (laughs) no experience in. I am risk averse. If I go to the casino and I win $5, I am done, I am good. You need that checks and balance, right? Because I do kind of think big. So they came to an agreement. Ria would keep her corporate job so they could have health insurance and some stability. And she'd help out on the weekends and evenings with Saucy Chick, 
Marcel would commit full-time to the business. And they also made a commitment to support other local BIPOC entrepreneurs, like sourcing beer from local Latino-owned breweries and wine from a Black-owned business. I'm a daughter to refugees, and um, I've seen firsthand the power of community. When we start looking at, like, monopolies and just these major conglomerates, what does that mean for folks like all of us? Their Mexican-Indian blend of flavors is getting attention. They've been written up in food and wine, and Los Angeles Magazine named them one of the city's best places to get takeout. They've recently opened up a sit-down restaurant partnering with another BIPOC food startup, Birria Chef's The Goat Mafia. Despite all their success, working together as a couple does have its challenges. In fact, Ria and Marcel have a bit of a war going on in Smorgasburg about which of their nacho plates is more delicious. They even cross their arms and smirk at each other when they list the ingredients. Contender number one, Marcel's nacho recipe, featuring shredded bright orange bibir chicken and non-GMO corn chips. We layer mom's beans uh, on top of it, which is a uh, chorizo cheese jalapeno with pinto bean, topped with our uh, green garlic sauce, our Gigi sauce, our ombli molasses, uh, some crema, lime pickled onions, and a fresh sprigs of uh, cilantro. Or contender number two, Ria's chachos, a play on the word chat or Indian snack food, featuring jita chicken. And we put it on a bed of butter crisps, which is like an Indian chip that's flour-based. And then we top it off with roasted peanuts, lime spice, coconut, fresh torn mint, and sev, which is a crispy chicken noodle. Ina Barcelona and her friend Erica Cortez are eager to try these creations. They came down from Ventura to Smorgasburg. Ina, may I get you chili oil? And how many forks? Ina grew up eating Filipino food, Erica Mexican food, and they're both adventurous when it comes to new flavors. They seem like the perfect referees to weigh in on the great nacho versus chacho war. First, Marcel's bibid chicken nachos. Oh, these are fire. These are great. I can like taste the herbal, garlicky. It's really healthy, actually, which I love. And now, Ria's Jira Chicken Chachos. I like this one better. You do? Yeah. See, we got somebody on each side. Yep. Yeah. What they're on to is a good one. It's a good mix. There you go. Appreciate it. I want to hold it from the bottom, okay? Cool. Have Thanks. a kind week. Thank you. Ria Patel and Marcel Michel say that's what Saucy Chick Rotisserie is all about. Using their unique mix of flavors to spread kindness while giving people a new twist on healthy food. But it's not easy putting in seven days a week with no days off. What advice would you give to people who might want to do this, you know, who might just want to jump off the cliff and and try for something that they've never done before? There is no guarantee of success. There's been many times where we're just like, what are we doing? Are we on the right path? It's hard work. I think that if you are committed to creating something and have a love and passion for it, follow it. But just know that it's gonna take a lot. Would you like some chili oil? Yes, please. For the California Report, I'm Sasha Coca in Los Angeles. Sasha Coca sent us that profile of Saucy Chick Rotisserie as part of our new series, Flavor Profile, about folks who created successful food businesses during the pandemic. If you have an idea for our series, email us at calreportmag at kqed.org. 
Next, we're headed to Petaluma, an old town with beautiful architecture. It's a pretty small place, quaint, located about 40 miles north of San Francisco. And part of its charm are these historic buildings, which survived the 1906 earthquake, like the old Phoenix Theater that's been there for over 100 years. The building has been a lot of things during its lifetime, but most recently, it's become a creative sanctuary for Petaluma's young people. It's a place they can fully be themselves to skate, jam, hang out without their parents. For our series Hidden Gems, reporter Jessica Carissa takes us there inside the Phoenix Theater. From the outside, the Phoenix Theater is unassuming. It's a gray corner building located in the middle of quaint downtown Petaluma. The few details that signal that it might be historic are a marquee with block letters and painted arches that frame the top of the building. Like any old theater, it has a lobby, a balcony, and a stage. But inside, it's a haven for Petaluma's teens. I formed like bands here and learned about art and music and stuff. If the Phoenix was never here, I wouldn't have any of the friends I have now. And like, there wouldn't be anything to do after school. I've come here every day after school. It's kind of like an escape from everything else. It's Friday afternoon, and Smokehouse, a teen band with a three-piece horn section, is on stage sound checking. Gabe, the 14-year-old sound tech, works on their levels from the side of the stage, while other teen musicians wait their turn, quietly plugging guitars and twirling drumsticks in a back room covered in graffiti and stickers. Before and after sound check, there are kids skating on ramps pushed up against tall walls that flank the stage. Once doors open at 7 p.m., another teenager will set up a table at the entrance and sell tickets. And when the show wraps up, a teenage crew will help clean up the century-old building. So you might think that the Phoenix is pretty much run by teenagers, but that's not entirely true. There are adults involved. In fact, one in particular that everyone I talked to mentioned. Tom. Tom, I don't know if you met Tom before. Tom Gaffey? Yeah, he's uh, the one and only. I love what Tom does for the community. Tom makes it like a great environment for everyone to like feel safe. Tom Gaffey is the general manager of the Phoenix. Do you know where I can find Tom? Tom? Yes. Hi, I'm Jessica. Hi, Jessica. <laughs> okay, cute. He's 67 and has been in the job since 1983. Tom's tall, wears glasses, and has white hair and a beard. And his connection to the theater goes all the way back to when he was a teenager. When I got here as a kid, it was a pretty gorgeous theater. Tom grew up in Petaluma, and as a high schooler in the early 70s, got a job working at the Phoenix. In those days, it was a movie theater. I learned how to be a projectionist and sell tickets and candy and, and all of that stuff and be a janitor and, and what it takes to really, uh, you know, run a theater in those days. By the time Tom got involved, the building was already steeped in history. It was built as an opera house. Caruso sang here. Uh, Houdini performed here. It did vaudeville, opera, whatever it could. And then by the 30s, it was full-on uh, movie theater. And it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful theater. After high school, Tom left town. He came back in 1983 to find the theater struggling. So he offered to help out. What I found was that the, the kids were using it for the damnedest projects. Uh, their bands were coming and rehearsing on the stage when they could. And, and uh, 
kids were kind of skating all over the building, and we started a couple art projects, and it turned out that the only people that were really using it and really showing any love were the younger generation. I took over the lease, and uh, a promoter came to me and said, well, I want to bring the Violent Femmes here. They were jumping off the stage and flying through the air and trying to beat up my staff. Oh my God, it was most incredible. And that night I was paid uh, the entire month's rent for that bill. The, the, the show sold out. And uh, that's when I realized this is going to be a rock and roll house. Green Day, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Metallica, Sublime. They've all played at the Phoenix. And it's not just rock music. At one point, the Phoenix was one of the few places booking hip-hop shows in the Bay, hosting artists like Snoop Dogg and Mac Dre. Today, the Phoenix is as far as you can get from the Grand Opera House or the pristine movie theater of its past. But it's no less special. In lieu of a bar, there's a snack machine. There's also a health clinic, and graffiti art covers almost every wall. Tom gives me a tour. So this is our skate shop. It's new. We, we opened it in, in uh, November. Coming straight across, uh, this is our uh, casual music room. As you can see, we've got some pianos in here. That piano uh, supposedly was played by uh, President uh, Reagan. He sat and tingled at that piano along with his Secretary of State. We've punked it out. All this is on the first floor alone. At the very top of the building is a studio that bands can use to practice for free. We try to do everything as, much, as free as we possibly can. If you can use this building in a meaningful way, that gives us a reason to be here, so let's do that. That's kind of pay enough. When we finish the tour, I head back downstairs and meet 16-year-old Keely Lauman. For her family, the Phoenix's impact runs deep. I moved to Petaluma like two years ago, and I started coming to the Phoenix probably like a year and a half ago or so. And like ever since I've come, I've never regretted it. It's always great to be here. And I ended up finding out my dad used to come here for a couple of the shows. 19-year-old Riley Taylor Drake of the band Wild Metanoia is backstage getting ready for tonight's show. This was like uh, last year, like our target venue to hit by the start of this year. And we've played here five times now, so. And the Phoenix isn't just a launching pad for young bands. One of Tom's teen sound technicians is now on the road with John Mayer. And the guy behind the board today, 14-year-old Gabe, already has some big shows under his belt. He's mixed Mac DeMarco. He's mixed uh, King Gizzard and Lizard Wizard here. Yeah, he's mixed some incredible shows for the bands on the stage. Hope you enjoyed the show with Bob Benanoia. We're from all over the Bay Area. Tonight, four bands are performing to a small but mighty crowd. The following afternoon, it's quiet again at the Phoenix. I catch Tom in the middle of cleanup, caring for the building just as he's done for the last 40 years. And I remember, uh, maybe ninth grade, one day before the movie started, I was sitting on the apron of the stage, and I said, uh, God, I want to come back and run this place. This was not at all what I had in mind. I couldn't even have envisioned something like this. People say, wow, man, thank you for what you're doing. And I, I come with the building. <laughs> That's it. All I'm doing, 
I'm opening the doors and cleaning the bathrooms. But Tom doesn't just come with the Phoenix. In a lot of ways, he is the Phoenix. For the community of regulars, the spirit of inclusion, creativity, and kindness that pervades just wouldn't exist without Tom, as much as he might like to pass the credit elsewhere. For The California Report, I'm Jessica Carissa. If you want to visit the Phoenix Theater in Petaluma, it's open every day at 3 p.m. with all ages shows every Friday and Saturday night. And that's it for the California Report magazine this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Katrina Schwartz is our interim senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer director. And Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. And it's the final week for our intern, Jessica Carissa. She spent the last year with us. We'll miss working with her so much every week, but she'll still be a part of our crew. Thanks so much for everything, Jess. I'm Bianca Taylor in for Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.